As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Let's Huddle with Ed Cunningham, a podcast at the intersection of sports, sports media, Hollywood, and hopefully life itself. I'm the executive producer and host, Ed. In this episode, we huddle with my longtime friend, John Costacos, who started a sports poster company in the mid-80s that created some of the most memorable images of sports icons from the era. We discuss how he and his brother got started and why so many athletes sought out their company, the Costacos Brothers, to memorialize them in a unique and creative art form that hung on the walls of just about every sports fan of the time. We do a deep dive into Brian Bosworth, a loved and loathed star of the 80s known as the Boz, and how Don James, the legendary coach of the Washington Huskies for whom I played, became known as the Dogfather. This is the Boz and the Dogfather, John Costacos. Here's where the title came out. When I was at one of those road games, his, his grandson, Jared, I think he was four years old, so I don't remember, it was 84, 85, somewhere around there. I was talking to his parents and uh or his, his mom who was don james's daughter and uh she we started just talking about my history going to husky games and i said yeah my dad and my godfather both had tickets so i usually had tickets to the games when i was a kid i'd take the bus and go to the games from the time i was like 10 years old and little jared said when he heard me say godfather he said dog father mm. and i said no i said godfather and he says dog father and you know so the kid just he wasn't trying to say it uh, you know, he was, he was just, he heard it and was repeating it, but just repeating it incorrectly. So I always remembered that. And so, so that would, was, so that was Don James grandson, grandson mm. Jared. You Woodruff. can totally hear a four. Uh, oh, so Jeff Woodruff, who was a coach on the staff, his son. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, I, wow. so he said, Don you can totally see a four year, four year old would just do that. Even if it wasn't yeah. as awesomely connected to the Huskies who refer to themselves as dogs spelled yeah. d-a-w-g uh yeah and some, so that just arenas, stuck in my yeah. head and i would refer to my godfather occasionally as a dog father you know just because i thought i was a funny you know just playing on the words but it didn't have anything to do with huskies in my mind at that time and so in 86 i think this was 84 86 we start making posters and then it was 89 i forgot all of a sudden this thing comes into my head and i'm thinking you know i i, I it's really strange that i'd never put dog father together with d-a-w-g father don james anything you know, or the godfather that you know that way and it just all hit me once and like, oh my god i'm dumb how come i never came up with this and i've been making posters for three years 
And so um, I. How much have you paid to uh, Woodruff's kid in royalties uh, up to this point? Millions, <laughs> millions of dollars. Yeah, because you probably lost money on that. What you're telling me on those posters is you probably. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You weren't Just paying no royalties reason, yeah. to anybody. You were sort of doing it for the because you went to school yep. there and you were in the poster yeah. business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this one was my, my, um, um, Jim Hackman was the one that, uh, Don James's, uh, son-in-law was the one that, uh, he, he, he helped with that. I, I approached coach James and, and, uh, Jim had something to do with it also, but it, it, uh, he said, okay. I was a little shocked because Don James was a really, really kind and like, he was a good guy. I really liked him but he was so quiet. He looked like one of those guys that could explode at any moment. I never saw him do it, but he was always, he, he was always, uh, times, he was just yeah. so serious. Not all that often. He was just so serious. <laughs> yeah. You know, he was a listener, you know, not a talker. So he was just a little bit uncomfortable because uh, you never knew what he was thinking. So when he said, yes, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Seriously. Cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was the one part about uh, coach James and, and the way you know, there, there was that side to him clearly uh, that was very stern. And we used to laugh, you know, that um, he would watch practice uh, from, from the tower, from the tower. Yeah. And he could see everything and he did see everything. And he, he went up there when, when, you know, during individual drills or when we were stretching all that, he was always on the field. But when we did team stuff, he'd go up in the tower and we always would laugh that he could see everything. Cause it would just, something would come up, you know, uh, later, but in that structure, we got a lot of freedom to be ourselves. You know, we weren't told, you know, like if you're going to listen to music, just put on headphones. Like you weren't told not to listen to music, just be respectful. You know, it was like we were allowed to in that construct be ourselves. And I think that really came together late in my time there and working uh, for and under him uh, where him doing that while it's a surprise doing the poster, meaning these dog father series of posters, which are really sort of tongue in cheek and pushing him forward as this, you know, sort of iconic guy, which he is and was um, that uh, he, I think was doing that to have some fun with us and enjoy that moment because we all knew we were playing well and we were on a little run and we're going to be good. And it was, it was really nice to see our, you know, could be sort of stern coach to have a little fun and lighten up and enjoy. I never it. thought about it that way. Yeah. He, you know? he, I think he actually did enjoy it. I think it gave him something that he could do because it was part of the culture of the thing that we were doing these kind of posters. And, um, and so it was, it was a moment where he got to, uh, where he, I think it was, it was one of those things where he, he, he knew he could do it and, and still, uh, have a little fun with it, but not lose who he was. The yeah. one thing that I know about him, and this comes from just taught, having so many guys that I know that played for him. He was super consistent and he was like everybody's dad in a way that like, here were the rules, you know, like you said, wear the headphone, you know, if you listen to music, but be respectful. And he had rules about, about life and the team. And so many guys that have talked to me, told me what they learned from him what they learned about life from him, what the discipline and the fundamentals and all the stuff that, and his consistency and all that kind of stuff was really to think of how many young guys that he influenced uh, in a positive way. It's pretty cool. Yeah. The, the consistency, uh, one, one of the, 
Coach James, uh, and, and for people who are listening and aren't, you know, Husky fans, Don James was a coach at the University of Washington uh, from the mid-70s until the early-ish 90s and uh, was the conference's winningest coach when he left. But he also is a big reason that Nick Saban at Alabama and Gary Pinkle now retired, but who went to Toledo and then uh, did a great job at Missouri. They were direct descendants of Don and always pointed to coach James as a huge influence on what they do. And, and Nick Saban still talks regularly about Don James. He played for him at uh, Kent state and then had his first coaching job under coach James uh, at Kent state. So that's sort of some context outside of the Seattle world. Um, But the, the thing that he, you know, on the micro level, on the program level with us as players, he would tell us straight up how we were expected to behave and when we were supposed to be there and how we were to dress. And he, every year it was the same thing. You show up here, here's how you dress, here's what you need. So that he, there was no real thinking. But one of the big rules he had, and he said it all the time, was you are in a privileged position being able to play here and be able to do this. And you are going to interact with three, four, five, sometimes 10 people a day that are here as part of this program on campus and be polite to all of them all the time. And what was nice was then he would say, because it's the right thing to do and you never know when you may need them to help you. There are guys from, you know, that have some pretty rough backgrounds. I remember them telling me, like, I didn't have anybody to teach me anything growing up. And here I was in this program. And the first time in my life, I, I had some, you know, discipline and rules. And the first thing I did was break the rules. And I got disciplined <laughs> for it. And I immediately realized I couldn't get away with anything. Oh, and yeah. didn't coach didn't the coach uh, send a couple of the guys home just for breaking curfew? On No, there wasn't breaking curfew. They, they were somewhere in a bar uh for a bowl game a few days before a bowl game and it was and a fight broke out they weren't even involved in the fight where there was this mm. big melee they didn't start it or anything but they happened to be there and and you know there was a bunch of bad publicity about it didn't he send a couple of guys home yeah i think that was from that? the orange bowl i think that might have been the orange bowl some before that 84 game but no we didn't we didn't have uh, maybe one in our little run there our our team was we were Nobody is super that team was a machine around. that you were yeah. on. Yeah. Well, and it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So here you are, the Costacos brothers. I'm talking with John Costacos, who, uh, along with his brother, Tak, started a company in the, what, mid 80s, we'll call it, where 86. started with t shirts, then went into posters. And if you Google Costacos brothers, and there's a really fantastic coffee table book out, uh, you'll see it on Amazon. There was an art installment of their work uh, in New York where Dana White, the owner of the UFC, bought all of the posters that were put up that night. It's it 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 captures a bit of nostalgia, John. And, you know, you've gone on and done other things and, um, you know, have another life. You sold the company. So you've sort of moved on from that era. But it, I think it's worth revisiting who. And, and please pull up images if you're if you've got a second screen up of Costacos brothers, uh, name the athletes, just top 10, top 15 that you made posters with. Uh, Jim McMahon, uh, Bo Jackson, 
Ricky Henderson, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, Walter Payton, uh, geez, uh, John Elway, Troy Aikman, uh, uh, the Bash Brothers, Mark McGuire and Jose. Oh, Conseco. that one. So I pulled up the Bash Brothers one, Mark, and, and that's um, uh, that looks like late 80s, early 90s. 1988. It was 88. Yeah, it was pre-juice for both of them, uh, <laughs> clearly um, in that. But it's a great one where they're both hold, holding huge bats. Uh, yeah, that one was fun. Yeah. So you start this company. Guys, yeah. No, no, go ahead with uh, Jose. And- See, we were, we were going to – and this is – in the, in the book, we talk about, we tell the individual stories of that. So, um, but what happened is I had to recall everything, you know, most of the, I remember most of it, but a lot of details got brought in as I was calling the photographers and the guys that worked on the sets. Oh, that one, we were going to call it the Blast Brothers. Like we, mm-hmm. the, because the Blues Brothers had come out in, I don't know, early, eight, 1982 or something. And, uh, or 81, 82. And so the Blues Brothers was a fairly, you know, it was a big hip movie. And so, we were going to call them the blast brothers because they're hitting so many home runs, but then they started this, um, this, uh, what they, what they called the forearm bash. They were cross. Oh yeah. 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 The yeah forearms. Yeah. Instead of a high five, they're bashing yeah, yeah, yeah. the forearms like in an that. X. And so somebody asked them what they called. They just called it the forearm bash. So after we shot it with them, we, um, changed it to the bash brothers. Yeah. Um, just because of that, but those, but those bats, I still have one of them. Are there you kidding place me? Called, yeah, there was a place called like it was called like Big Toys or something like that. And they made oversized uh, copies of toys, you know, uh, and things. <laughs> and so just call them in New York. We needed a couple of bats. And, la- and later in his career, McGuire could actually swing about that big. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you were in that sweet spot uh, in Seattle uh, in the sports culture where we were going from a couple of games on a week on ABC or NBC and, you know, your highlights on your local news at night, you know, um, into ESPN, into blockbuster movies, into franchises. How do we launch a franchise? And I think that's one of the things you guys captured really well. And Charles Barkley, who uh, there's some really, there's some really great, there's a great piece and a little documentary about you guys on, on SB nation. I recommend looking into and Barkley was very complimentary. And he said, you weren't cool for being in these posters. The poster made you cool. Just the creative piece for you. Cause I know you were you know big on the creative side, Barkley. I think he's standing on the backboard uh, or, yeah. you know, standing on the he's rim. Standing on the rim. Yeah. So do you talk to the, did the you talk to the athlete? Did you already title. have ideas? Did you take them? You know, what'd you yeah, do it, for something it, like that? It was, it was all, it was usually if we had, if, if the athlete, if the best posters came when the athlete got a chance to talk to us, cause we told them what we we're thinking of doing and they would say, well, how about this? Or how about that? Or I look better than this. Or I don't like that. And we'd go through it. So he, we had buy-in from the guy before he showed up. So uh, we had a level of comfort. So we'd get there, give it a try. And then we could improvise more because we had a relationship with him. But a lot of times, we'd come up with, you know, what about these two ideas? And when you know, here's an idea, a idea B and the guy said, oh, I like B better. Okay. Why? And then we'd go through that with him. And, and so we had really good access. The athletes liked working with us. You know, it's weird. You, you go from, uh, 
starting your business and, you know, running it out of a room in the house and uh, to, you know, and shipping posters out of the garage yeah. to being at the Pro Bowl and Lawrence Taylor is introducing you to like all the biggest names and they're all loved your poster, his poster. And they're like, here, here's my number. Call me or here's my agent. Well, we had everybody's home phone numbers because yeah. everybody, it was weird that how many people wanted to work with us. We were like, holy cow, is this really happening? And just for the younger audience, a home phone number is the thing that you used uh, before cell phones <laughs> and you had to be there to pick it up. At the beginning, it was a little hard because I was trying to get a hold of Steve Largent. So I left a couple of messages at the Seahawks because he did his own deals. And so wow. I couldn't get a hold of him. But I had a friend that worked in in um, media and and she got me a, a pass, a locker room pass for after a Seahawks game. And so I ended up... Um, Going into the city, I just, all I wanted to do was go to Steve Large and say, listen, I want to make a poster of you, Kenny's poster. And so I go in the locker room after the game and I see Gary right there. And Gary's a, he's a PR, uh, marketing yeah, director was, of the Seahawks. Yep, and he Gary. knew me. I, yeah, I know Gary. So he has, he knows I have no place being in the locker room. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm trying. I've been busted I, I, by a head coach before being in the locker room. I wasn't yeah. supposed to be. And that's, that's yeah, exactly. Too. Yeah. So Steve Largent, who's the most all-American player of, of all time, you know, like married, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, very conservative yeah. family guy, four children, right? Yeah. So he comes back from the – I'm trying to hide because he's not at his locker. You see his locker. And and he's – I'm trying to hide from Gary Wright for long enough for Steve to get back. So here he comes. He's back. And I'm like, so here's Steve Largent, you know half naked and I got to go introduce myself and say, can I get your phone number? You know, <laughs> did you get it? So, yep. But right when I got there, I was talking to him, I got his number and, uh, and then I get this tap on my shoulder. Like while I'm talking to him, I got that. And I was telling him a little bit more about what we wanted to do. And I get this tap on my shoulder and it's scary, right? He goes, Stakos, you're not supposed to be here. You got to go. So, okay, yeah. fine. And I left, but I got what I needed. So, yeah, I, I, there, there was a few situations like that. But a lot of times the players, a lot of the players at the Pro Bowl, I just got all their numbers at the Pro Bowl. We had more than we needed uh, at that time. And then yeah. the ones that I didn't get, I, I knew to call the PR department and ask for their agent. And most of the agents had begun well, to that figure about our stuff. Yeah, that's the hard, the thing about because um, as a producer, because that's what you were, were right? You were a creative yeah. producer in the poster mm -hmm. medium, right? And for those who yep. think posters, oh, that's so uh, hip and retro, every teenage sports fan boy had sports posters on their wall from late seventies into the late nineties, wouldn't you say posters were yeah. pretty ubiquitous? I mean, they still are. Yeah. People still obviously do a lot. I have posters. I put posters up, but I'm talking about like a key aesthetic to 12 to 22 or 23 year old dudes who like sports were sports posters. Wouldn't you say during that era? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, there, there's a, um, when, when they did the art exhibit in New York um, 10 years ago, this uh, guy, Chris Ballard at Sports Illustrated, wrote something really nice, and he talked about it. And he said, like, the, the walls of a teenage boy's room are sacred territory. And he talked about it being the place where you put all the stuff that you love the most. And um, he talked about having Paulina Poroskova 
wearing something that you know looked like you know like this tiny swimsuit covering almost nothing and he had uh you know i think will clark who was his favorite baseball player and then he said you know but in the middle was my most prized possession it was my poster of ronnie lott called designated hitter and you know and he and he talked about how he said i didn't think of it with any sense of irony or whatever i just thought it was really cool the one that you when i called you the other day we got into because i am incredibly passionate about the career of brian bosworth and and specifically Ah. the the football career of brian bosworth um so you did a, a poster and it's totally worth pulling up totally if you're listening please put in the land of boz b-o-z and brian bosworth was a linebacker at oklahoma in the mid 80s he was very flamboyant really good player had a uh, sort of mohawk mullet uh wore bandanas very flamboyant and then he sort of bucked the system and went pro early through what's called the supplemental draft where he left oklahoma and I, I, I was reading that he sent letters to the 15 NFL teams he wouldn't play for. He wanted to play in New York or Oakland or uh, uh, Los Angeles time Raiders. Um, and included in that list, he'd sent one to the Seahawks and said, don't draft me. I won't play there. And the Seahawks decided to draft him anyway. And I think it was the supplemental draft of 1987. So the spring of 1987, Seattle, Washington, a very button-down, Birkenstock-wearing, flannel-wearing, you know, takes a little while to warm up to outsiders type of town, welcomes this brash football player from Oklahoma, and that was my freshman year at the University of Washington. So when I got to Seattle as a kid from Virginia, Brian Bosworth was getting there that fall to play for the Seahawks, and anything you see about Brian Bosworth and and his NFL career playing for the Seahawks is that he was a bust that he was not very good. And then he hurt his shoulder in his second year and his career was over. And I witnessed and also doing some research that he was actually really pretty good. He was a very good NFL player and except for a shoulder injury that was devastating, regardless of what you think of the guy, it was something that ends a lot of people's careers. I've sort of had this passion uh, for Brian Bosworth, but don't you think your poster sort of, it's just a little too much for, you know, Seattle, I know Seattle. It's a lovely place. It's one of the best places in the world. Uh, they drive more Subarus than they do Lamborghinis. You know what I mean? Like they just, don't you think that (laughs) sort of level just sort of didn't do Brian any favors, uh, in the, uh, 206, 425 area codes. You know, I don't know because everybody liked the poster. The number That's of so people good, that I man. It was really poster. Yeah, you know? good point. And 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 the thing is, Brian. This is all part of Brian's. He Brian's. Here's the thing. First of all, he's a really good guy. He, he, I always liked him. He was always well. I saw the documentary. The, the documentary on ESPN you know? where he went to his storage unit with his son was really fantastic. It, yeah. it was, I think yeah, the I filmmakers saw. did a really great job and, yeah. and it was really honest. And uh, that's the only time I've ever felt like, Oh, Oh, that's who this man, this person is, was that. And I thought it was really well done. This came from his agent. Okay. I met his agent, Gary Richard early. Because if you remember the, the, the football preview magazine, the sports illustrated, he was on the cover with Jim McMahon. Okay. Oh. The two rebels. And one of them, I think it was Bosworth, McMahon was on Bosworth's uh, shoulders. 
So these two, you know, brash rebel types, right? They kind of put them together. And uh, so when Bosworth, so here we were in our second year making posters and they had the supplemental draft and the Seahawks get him. And this guy's colorful and he's, he, you know, he was viral before viral was a word, oh, yeah. you know, with, with regard to what, you know, the internet and everything. And, and uh, we we couldn't believe our luck, you know? And so uh, I immediately, I didn't know how to get a hold of him. There was no team I could call to find his agent's number. So I just sent him a letter at the university of Oklahoma athletic department. And a, and a week later, I got a call from Gary Richard, his agent, and he wanted to do it. He wanted to work with us. Um, you know, wherever Brian landed, because the question was, was he going to hold out or not? And so, uh, so I was, I, Gary and I were talking a lot. He was calling me and asking me what the local newspapers were saying about the holdout, because I think oh, he, while, I think while he, because uh, he ended up getting, I mean, a record contract, big, big, yeah. big deal. You know, you you can say what you want about agents, but from what I saw, Gary and whoever was negotiating for Brian Bosworth did a really. Yeah, it was nice like job. I think it was like a ten or eleven million dollar deal, which was huge at that time. Yeah, and he, and this is part of his negotiating. It's like he he was calling me and asked me what they were saying on the news. I was faxing. This was him. the agent, Gary Richard. Yeah, yeah, I was faxing him, you know, copies of what they were saying in the newspaper about the holdout and all of this. And this is, I think, part of his, you know, the agent walks a little bit of a fine line. You don't want your player having to sit out. He knew that it would be really bad for Brian uh, for for all of his plans if he sat out a year, you yeah. know. Uh, and so I think I think he all I think he planned on signing with the Seahawks, but just negotiated his best deal he could. There was a plan here though, right? They, the, the, there was a bigger plan here for Brian. I mean, it wasn't just the NFL was the, the sort of goal here, right? Gary had a plan. Gary wanted, he, he wanted to be a film producer and, uh, and he had a big plan for that for Brian to play in the NFL for about five years, uh, be really, really good and quit at the peak and um, go become a movie star. Man, that is a big plan to put on someone else's shoulders. How did that come he, about? And did Brian play along with he, that? Because that's that. I mean, I, I, okay, how and why? And you don't control. Here's what you do not control is the length of an NFL career. I guarantee you that having played yeah. in that league. You know, the fact that Brian got in two years, and I think he really did damage his shoulder pretty significantly. Um, but how did Gary come up with that? And did Brian, was he in on that? I Okay, from I've talked to both of them about it. But the, the, what I learned from Gary back then, he said, look, Brian's going to be the Elvis of football. And he said, and I miss <laughs> Colonel Tom Parker. All right. And this was oh, when I, I was a little annoyed that, that they were. That's such an that, awful reference to just the amount of control. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. And he, he, here's the thing, Gary. He Gary said that to you. Who, he said those yeah. words to you. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> he was a good guy to be around. I really liked him. And he, 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 but he had a plan for Brian. They, they were late for the poster shoot by like an hour. And I said, I asked him later, what was the holdup? And he said, uh, the star always arrives late. 
did Gary have other Hollywood clients? Did he? No. Was he, no, was here's, there, he was, was there a, a grand plan? Was there like, was he, was we getting Brian acting lessons and an agent and manager in Hollywood? Was I he going to commercial shoots? I don't know if he was doing, uh, I don't know if he was doing, taking acting lessons, but I do know that he had, he had that plan that, that, and he, and he said, he said, look, Brian's one of the, he's a great player. Uh, and, and this Boz character is, is huge. And he said, look, it was huge. I, I do have to say that he, he does have a good point there. It was a huge character. It was really, yeah, it's a good nickname. Brand. And yeah, yeah. And the Mohawk, you know, the, the Mohawk with the blue stripes on, I mean, kids were getting their, you know, their hair done like that in Seattle and, you know, other places in the country that, you know, because he was, he was the boss. And so he, he, I mean, that was, and so Gary also, I remember him pointing out to me how old, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone and all of the other, you know, action film stars were at that time. They were all like, you know, I guess in their forties or something at the time and late thirties, forties. And and Brian, here's Brian at, you know, 21, 22 years old. So to him, there's an opening for a young new action star and, you know, and Brian's going to be it. When I talked with Brian about, I don't know, it was like, maybe eight years ago when we were talking about it. And the first thing is uh, his shoulder. He had had pain in, in his shoulder for all those years, you know, 15 years. And everybody just said, it's, you know, it's just something you're going to have to live with. And he said, he finally found a doctor that said, you don't have to live with this pain anymore. Oh, that's great. And, and he, he said, I got a lot of titanium up there, but they finally were able to do it. And so he was really happy about that. The so his shoulder, cause did, you keep in touch with Brian, right? Yeah. 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 You should talk to him and he's a good guy. You'll like him. I'd love it. I'd love it. I, when, I've been a fan of that guy's for a long time. And it's, it's so cool to hear the story that there was sort of a puppet master in a way. Cause I always, it, here's what I always assumed about Brian Bosworth. I assumed he was up to all this. I really did. I, Don James said something about him when he was, uh, cause he was a freshman starting in the orange bowl against the Huskies in, in 84. Oh, wow. And he, and Talk about full circle. About yeah, they t- yeah, they talked about how good he was. And I remember, and this is when I learned who he was. It's the first time I learned it. He said, oh, wow. he said uh, I, I would love to have somebody like him playing for me. He talked about how good he was. Well, that certainly came full circle. And good to hear my old coach felt the same way about the boss as I did. Thanks to John for coming on the show and bringing back some great memories. The art and imagery created by the Kostakos brothers had a big influence on how we saw the sports world, and it's bigger than life stars. Please check out the book, Walls of Fame, the unforgettable sports posters of the Kostakos brothers, where you'll see why the company had such an impact on the sports landscape. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter, at Let's Huddle With, on Facebook, Let's Huddle With Ed Cunningham, and on Instagram, Let's underscore Huddle underscore With underscore Ed. If you want to come right to the source, the show's homepage, go to Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. Scroll through their impressive lineup, then search up Let's Huddle to get to our page. Reach out, let us know what you think, and any guests or topics you'd like to hear about. Let's Huddle with Ed Cunningham is a production of True Stories Incorporated and is edited by Ryan Lindsay of Fushaw Media. The Believe team on the Let's Huddle beat are producer Alex Disopoulos, Joe DeLeon, and Josh Fisher. Audio engineers Carter, Connor Haynes, and Cam Rogers help out with the marketing. And my first contact with Team Believe, Bron Husenstein, the chief executive. Thanks, everyone. And thank you for listening. Thank you. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.